Bill Gates, who most of us know as the co-founder of Microsoft, is ranked in the top five wealthiest people in the whole world. Believe it or not, he has a net worth of nearly $133 billion. All that basically means is he is an extremely wealthy man. He's wealthier than all of us in this room combined. He's wealthier than all of us in this room combined and Barling and Fort Smith over several generations combined. On top of that, for decades now, he has a proven track record of being able to make more and more money and invest it into other money-making enterprises. Uh, For Mr. Gates, money is as accessible to him as bottled water is for us. So what do you think the most, one of the most wealthy men in the world believes about morality? And specifically, morality found in the Bible. When Bill Gates was asked, do you believe in the Sermon on the Mount? For those of you who don't know, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' infamous sermon from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Mr. Gates replied, I don't. I'm not somebody who goes to church on a regular basis. The specific elements of Christianity are not something I'm a huge believer in. There's a lot of merit in the moral aspects of religion. I think it can have a very, very positive impact. He goes on to add, in terms of doing things, I take a fairly scientific approach to why things happen and how they happen. I don't know if there's a God or not, but I think religious principles are quite valid. Mr. Gates says, you can draw out some moral principles from the Bible, but the specific elements of Christianity, eh, we can just disregard. And on top of that, he doesn't even know if there's a God or not. So any element of a judgment day, or how we would be judged, or even judged at all, is largely ambiguous in this wealthy man's mind. I wonder what specifics, what specific elements of Christianity Mr. Gates is alluding to that he's just not a huge believer in. He doesn't mention believing anything in this interview about the cross of Jesus Christ. He doesn't mention anything about repentance of sin or heaven and hell. He doesn't even mention anything about earthly treasure in contrast to heavenly treasure. And unless his beliefs have changed since this interview took place a few decades ago, he doesn't have confidence there is even a God at all. My guess, he is like many people we know, people we know in our own life. They are moral, but not distinctly Christian. They are spiritual, but not religious. They may believe in God, but whether it's the God revealed in Scripture or a God they've made up in their own minds, that's just kind of up for grabs. What's right for you is right for you, and what's, what's right for me is what's right for me. So how about you? How much of the Bible do you actually believe 
when it comes to the specifics of Christianity? Do you tend to read the more pleasant portions of the Bible? But skip over those sections that have a sharper edge to them. How much of Jesus' teachings do you submit your life to quite easily and happily, and which ones do you tend to avoid and just eh, ignore? What about morality? Do you find yourself picking and choosing which parts of Christian ethics sit well with you and which ones don't? If you were to be totally honest, which parts of Jesus' example and Jesus' teachings rub you the wrong way? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 specifically, we'll be looking at Mark 10, verses 13 to 31 together. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 493. And again, if you don't have a Bible, you can read at home. You can take that Bible and the chair back as a gift from our church to you. Throughout our study in the Gospel of Mark, we've been confronted with many matters related to Jesus' impeccable example, as well as his profound teachings. So to kind of review a little bit, since it's been a little while, we've been in Mark for a consistent time, we've encountered Jesus' corrective teaching towards the Pharisees' legalistic and man-made traditions. And conversely, we've seen Jesus unfold the true and precise meaning, as well as the accurate application of God's word. His teaching left the unrepentant angry and hostile towards him. But his teaching also left the humbled and hungry in awe and in wonder of him. Unlike teaching many of the crowds had heard before, Jesus' teaching was on a whole other level. It came with a towering authority over anything a scribe or some Jewish teacher had ever measured up to. And throughout our study, we've also witnessed Jesus cast out demons. Yes, we believe as Christians in the supernatural realm, light and darkness, good angels, bad ones. And Jesus flexes his divine muscles over the puny muscles of the demonic realm. And we've even seen Jesus show his compassion and his power to heal, like healing the leper, healing the paralytic, making the deaf hear and making the mute speak. He's also sat down and ate with sinners who needed spiritual healing from their corruption and sin. And because we've learned throughout Mark's gospel that Jesus is the divine physician who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And not only did Jesus sit with sinners, he stood among them and he miraculously fed thousands with just a few loaves of bread and a pair of fish. And whether it's his parables about the kingdom or his unparalleled ability to see into the depths of our hearts, Jesus leaves no one he ever encountered with the possibility of riding the fence with him. Friends, if you're reading the Gospels carefully, we will find ourselves reading about a Jesus who has some sharp edges about him. 
words, if you can read the Gospels comfortably and it never bother you, it never make you feel a little uncomfortable, it, it never actually corners you in any areas of hypocrisy in your life, friends, we're not reading the Gospels carefully. Jesus is a friend of sinners, but Jesus does have some sharp edges to what he taught. You see, unlike a religious huckster, unlike a manipulative man-pleaser, and unlike a crowd-drawing coward, the Jesus of Scripture does not compromise when it comes to saying what needs to be said, even when it's not popular, and even when it's not well-received all the time. Friends, when crowds flocked to Jesus, and when individuals ran up to Jesus, Jesus drew the lines. He drew the lines in the sand, and he looked at every person in one way or another, the crowd or the individual, in one way or another, challenged them to choose who will you serve, to choose who you will truly worship, to choose where your future security and your eternal fate is in. Friends, Jesus comes to all of us, and he says, choose. Follow me, give your whole life to me, or turn your back. He will not play with those who ride on the fence. Time and time again, Jesus looks people into the eyes and causes our souls to be laid bare. Friends, Jesus too looks at us, and says, if you want to follow me, it requires total allegiance, total commitment of your whole life. Friends, isn't that exactly what Jesus taught his disciples in Mark chapter 8? Hear these words again. Mark 8, starting in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Uh, last week, we saw one of those razor-sharp edges as Jesus taught on what marriage is and why divorce even happens in the first place in the world. And we learned last week that Jesus still has and always has and always will have God's definition of marriage all the way back from Genesis 1 and two, one man and one woman in covenantal relationship with God as the author and authority of it. Uh, Jesus was correcting the Pharisees who had been teaching and spreading an easy breezy, no-fault divorce mentality. And Jesus' teaching also shook up the disciples. Apparently, they had been led astray by that same kind of liberal do-as-you-wish-with-marriage mentality. This morning, we now turn to the next section in Mark's Gospel. And Jesus continues to do what he's been doing since the way section of Mark began in Mark 8, 27 onward. He continues to model, to teach, and to uphold the high cost of discipleship as he journeyed 
towards the cross. Please follow with me. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. Here next in Mark's gospel, we see two separate stories that both center around one overarching question. How does someone inherit eternal life? How does someone enter into or inherit the kingdom of God? Or as we might commonly say in our day, 
How can a guilty sinner be saved by a good and holy God? Here in this first story, in verses 13 to 16, Jesus is seen presumably by some moms and dads in the Judean territory. And the text says they are bringing children to Jesus. But why? Does Jesus have like the best animal crackers in town? The best uh, skeezy fruit, as Noah used to say when he was a little kid? The best applesauce? Why were they doing that? Well, according to verses 13 and verse 16, they are doing so in order for Jesus to lay hands on them and to pray for them, to bless them. Uh, These parents obviously perceive that bringing their young children to Jesus should be a top priority on their parenting to-do list. Uh, To all the parents in the room, if you still have children in the home, could you just raise your hand just so I know where you're at? Just don't don't be embarrassed. Get them up. Get them up. Raise the roof. There we go. If you've been blessed by God to care for and raise up children, be sure to make sure praying for them, praying over them, And introducing them to Jesus is a high priority. Listen again. If you have children in the home, in the womb, and out of the womb, make sure that praying over your children, for your children, and talking about Jesus and introducing them to Jesus is a high priority. May it never be said, of church-going kids when they look back on their life that they grew up in a home where Jesus was a Sunday-only religion. May it be said of every child looking back on their upbringing, whether in this congregation or another one, that Jesus was real to mommy and daddy Sunday through Saturday. Friends, parents, pray for your children with them, Pray for your children when they're sleeping. Introduce them to Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Nurture them. Cause them to experience the warmth and love of a Jesus-loving home. And amidst all the wonderful plans you have for your kid's life, pray and prioritize as much as you're able that they know Jesus. Of course, Jesus had laid hands before on people. He did this for sick people who needed to be healed, demon-possessed people who needed to be delivered. In fact, we know from Mark chapter 5, Jesus had even laid hands on a little girl who had been miraculously restored to life after she had been pronounced dead. But in our passage, in Mark chapter 10, it doesn't appear that the children are sick. It doesn't appear that the children are demon-possessed. There's no mentioning of those things being the cause of why the parents were bringing their kids to Jesus. It appears that the parents saw something in Jesus that was far more important than just a good education, nice clothes, or lots of friends. They knew the spiritual need for their children, and they brought their children to the only one who could solve that issue. Seeing that it was an honor for a respected rabbi to pray over and bless a young child, as we see depicted in the Old Testament through the patriarch Jacob blessing his boys, Jesus was viewed as the one who could channel 
the blessings of God for the welfare of the child and his or her future. But something else quite unusual occurs in this account, in which Mark tells us, as well as the synoptic parallels of Matthew and Luke, we're told in verse 13 that Jesus' disciples were against this practice of the parents bringing their kids to Jesus. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when he saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Doesn't that sound odd? Disciples of Jesus are trying to stop others from bringing their children to Jesus. Followers of Jesus are preventing others from coming to Jesus. Mark says the disciples rebuked them, criticized them, corrected them, tried to put up a roadblock from the parents and the children going on the highway to Jesus. But why? Well, we're not told explicitly why. But we can deduce from something that happened earlier and what Jesus says in a minute of why. Look back at Mark 9, just briefly. Look at Mark 9, 38 to 41. Mark 9, 38 to 41, we see a section where it says that John said to them, one of his disciples, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. You see, John and the other disciples previously had attempted to stop others casting out demons in Christ's name fundamentally because they were not a part of their holy huddle. They thought that somehow Jesus played favorites in the discipleship realm. And their uncharitable attitude, Jesus corrects and rebukes them. So at the very least, we can deduce that because this had happened before, this time somehow the disciples thought that children were a nuisance to Jesus' hustling and bustling ministry. This is their attitude, basically. Children are an annoyance and an irritation to have around. Children would just be a distraction, Jesus. Children would just get in the way. Children would just slow us down. Children would just get in the way of the more important aspects of ministry. But we can tell from Jesus' deeply displeased response that Jesus deeply disagreed with his own disciples. Mark says he was indignant. It literally means he was aroused to anger. Jesus was not happy with his own disciples. 
He was not happy with their attitude or their actions towards the parents and towards the kids. Friends, just a good tip when studying Scripture, especially getting your Christology right, knowing who Jesus is, both his divine nature and his human nature in one person. Anytime Jesus is said to be angered or frustrated in the Gospels, we should all sit up and listen very carefully to why. If the sinless Son of God shows grief or indignation, that means it's instructive for us. That's because Jesus' anger shows us what grieves the very heart of God. Here we see one of a handful of times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus shows negative, though not sinful, emotions towards something he saw. Back in Mark 3, verse 5, we saw Jesus become angry at the hardness of hearts that the Pharisees showed towards Jesus' healing of the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. Then in Mark 8, verse 12, we see Jesus deeply frustrated. It says he sighed oh, at the unbelief of the Pharisees when they were trying to demand a sign from heaven from him. But we can gain insight from Jesus' response here in Mark 10, what he was doing by correcting his disciples and by allowing the parents to bring their young children to him. In verse 15, we see the key unlock the door to understanding the point of this text. He clarifies what he meant in verse 14. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, that's just another way of Jesus saying, hey, what I'm about to say is a true and faithful statement. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is Jesus teaching in this situation? Well, in seeking to be faithful, Paul tells Titus in Titus 1.9 that elders and pastors are to teach sound doctrine and to refute or correct those who contradict it. So I'm going to teach in a corrective and then in a positive manner by answering that question. What is Jesus teaching in this situation? Let's start out with what he's not teaching. Throughout church history and even in the church today, there has been some confusion and I believe mishandling of this passage with how it applies to Christians and their children. So here's a good question. Is Jesus in this text saying that all children are Christians? Is this text teaching that all children belong to the kingdom of God? Well, with a careful reading, the answer would be no. When he says in verse 14, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, he means that what a child represents their social status, their physical stature, depicts what is required of all sinners to have spiritually in order to enter the kingdom of God. So according to Jesus, what does a child represent socially? What does a child represent physically that teaches us what is required for entrance into the kingdom spiritually? Well, think for a minute. A child in this day had no status 
in society. Compared to the greater majority of the community, they were nobodies. They were just children. And just like they are today in comparison to adults, they are physically powerless. They are weak. And without the aid of adults, little children are helpless. They need to be fed, clothed, and carried, or their needs will not be met. Young children are thus characterized as vulnerable and utterly dependent upon the power, upon the goodness, upon the benevolent care and provision of someone greater than them. Uh, to that point, the word there, children and child, in this section in the Greek word, is paideon. Paideon. It just means a young child. In Luke's gospel, in Luke 18, 15, he uses the Greek term brephos. Brephos. It, it literally meant an infant. A babe. A newborn baby. So if these young children are predominantly super young, and perhaps even babies, we know that babies can't even have the ability to repent of sin or the ability to believe the gospel. They can't talk. They can't reason. They can't make decisions for themselves. The only thing they can do is cry to tell others, I'm hungry and I'm tired. In this text, you'll also notice how Jesus doesn't say anything about the child repenting of sin, and he doesn't say anything about the child's individual profession of faith. Again, it's very clear in this text. It's the parents bringing the children to Jesus. But the children aren't said to do anything. The only thing the children do in this passion, in this passage, is be embraced blessed, loved, and prayed for by Jesus. Listen again. Mark 1.15 says that repentance and faith are required for a saving response to salvation. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, just clearly stated, Jesus is not in this text saying that all babies are Christians. They're not because they can't repent. They can't believe. But another question some may ask, is this passage then stating that babies should be baptized? You know, is this a proof text for Christian parents to have their child sprinkled or poured with the New Testament ordinance of baptism? Uh, some Christians, you may have formerly been a part of a church that held this view or raised this way that hold to this practice of infant baptism are called paedo-baptist. The Greek word pace means child, paideon, very similar there. Hence, infant or child baptism. And some within this conviction actually point to this text as a proof text for infant baptism. Paedo-baptism would therefore be a position we do not hold here at CCBC. So in joining our church, you can't merely tolerate believers-only baptism. You must believe it. And that conversely means you must say, I do not believe in infant baptism. Those are two contradictory beliefs. Credo baptism is what CCBC would be. Credo, 
which comes from the Latin for our English word creed, which means belief or I believe. Hence, only those who give credible professions of belief, faith, repentance, are baptized. Baptism is for believers only. But there's one big problem with holding to the Pado baptist position using this text. Did you notice? There's no mentioning of Christian New Testament baptism. There's no mentioning of water. There's no sprinkling. There's no pronouncement of the triune God. There's no mentioning of anything like it. But now let me pick on my Baptist friends. We can do that because we are Baptist. Even in Baptistic circles, some have even tried to use this passage to say you should never delay baptism for young children in discerning a credible profession of faith. The argument goes like this. If children come to Jesus, who are you to say they can't be baptized? There's another problem. Did you catch it? There's no mentioning of Christian New Testament baptism. It's about Jesus blessing the children, not Jesus baptizing the children. Now I'm going to step on everyone else's toes. Some, even within our Southern Baptist circles, have tried to use this text to support a ceremonial baby dedication at the conclusion of a church service. Again, it's Jesus doing the praying and the blessing, not the disciples. Jesus never told his disciples in the Great Commission to go and have baby dedications. You won't find one shred of evidence in the New Testament. You don't see it in Acts. You don't see it in the epistles. You see it nowhere. Baby dedication, though sincere, is nothing but dry infant baptism. Our Presbyterian friends point that out in our inconsistencies. And I would say we can pray for our children. We should evangelize our children. We should talk much to, about Jesus to our children. But to add an ordinance or a ceremony that Jesus never commanded us to do is going beyond Scripture. I don't think it's sinful to have a baby dedication. I don't think it's particularly wise. I think it can actually confuse people more than you realize. Friends, I think our practice here at CCBC for praying for parents in the pastoral prayer, encouraging parents through children's ministry and interpersonal relationships, and praying for God to convert children is a biblically wise pattern for us to uphold. So I've now just taken the broom and swept out all the clutter around this passage. It's been super confusing for a lot of people. And let's just get clear about what on earth is going on in Mark 10. What is the primary teaching that Jesus is conveying to us about kids? Two things. Number one, Jesus loves little children. Profound, right? Jesus loves little children. Number two, childlike faith is required for entrance into the kingdom of God. Childlike faith is required for entrance into the kingdom of God. You've probably heard the classic children's song before. Maybe you can sing it if you remember. 
Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Friends, that's not just a good song, that's good theology. Beloved, children are near and dear to the heart of God. And friends, God cares about children inside the womb and outside the womb. That's why abortion, to hold a New Testament Christian ethic, is murder. And that's why abortion is an abomination. God loves children. You murder them inside the womb. He hates it. He despises it. And though children are born as sinners with a sin nature, Psalm 51.5, Romans 5.19, their vulnerability, their neediness, their ignorance of spiritual truth, and their protection from the ugliness of the real world out there are things that God cares about. God has created children to be impressionable by nature. That's why it's normal for kids to act like and talk like their parents. Not all the time, but often. God made children impressionable to copycat and trust in those who care for them. That's a part of the way God made kids. That's why it's so crucial for a parent to understand that protecting their child's innocence is so important. The younger children are, parents should shield them from as much depravity and debauchery as possible that goes on in the world. Whether that's shielding them from inappropriate movies, off-color cartoons, or the ungodly speech of family members or neighbors or even the neighbor's kids. And as those kids get older, our goal as parents is not to protect them from the world at all costs. Like living in a hole is spiritual or something. We are called to teach our children to be discerning between truth and error, good and bad, and to fear God in the real world we live in. According to God's word, children then are to be provided for, protected, nurtured, disciplined, and taught, listen, primarily by their moms and dads. To encourage parents in here, I would encourage you to jot down these scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. It's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Hebrews 12, 7 to 10. Hebrews 12, 7 to 10. And Titus 2, verses 3 and 4. Titus 2, verses 3 and 4. Friends, the reason I gave you those texts to look up for yourself, we all in this church need to be convinced from Scripture about the parents' primary role in discipling their children. I told you Jesus has got some razor-sharp edges. The parents, not the youth pastor, not the college pastor, not even the children's ministry director, the parents. 
Children's ministry and student ministry in the local church should never supplant the parents' primary role in discipling their kids. I'm going to say it again. Children's ministry and student ministry in a local church should never supplant the parents' primary responsibility of discipling their kids. In other words, children's ministry and student ministry is not parent replacement ministry. It's a supplement to encourage and equip and come alongside, but not replace. Friends, if we have children's ministry and student ministry at CCBC now and into the future, if we are not encouraging and equipping and supplementing what parents ought to be doing, but rather replacing them. We are failing as parents, and we are failing as a church. Pastors are called to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, and saints includes mom and dad. Why do I say this? Why is that not just a hobby horse, but a biblical conviction? Because scores of Christians, many of you, were probably raised in a culture that viewed pastors as the professionals to do the child raising for you when it comes to the spiritual matters of their heart. Friends, that is not biblical. It's wrong. So no, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, no pun intended. But we have to walk that line very carefully. God's word is super clear about who has the primary responsibility for their children's welfare. And friends, if we have unbelieving spouses that are married to a member, we need to come alongside that mom or that dad who's a single parent or married to an unbeliever and encourage them, evangelize the unbelieving parents, and show the love of Christ to those kids who are in our fold. We might become their spiritual mom and dads until God may convert their parents Friends, be thinking carefully about that in the future of our church. We want to be biblical in everything we do, including how we parent and in how we disciple children. Beloved, that means if we find ourselves speaking poorly of children when God speaks highly of them, that means we don't have the heart and mind of God. Scripture is so clear that children are a gift from God. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. The Lord deeply cares about the orphan. And the fatherless, Deuteronomy 10.18 and James 1.27. Friends, take this away from this passage. At the very least, understand that Jesus loves children. He welcomed them. He wasn't bothered or annoyed by them. In his busy, challenging, hustling, and bustling ministry and lifestyle, Jesus made time for kids. He saw children not as inferior, but as little people made in the image of God. Unlike his disciples who viewed children as a distraction or a hindrance or annoyance with Jesus in their ministry, Jesus corrected them and said, bring them to me. How about you? Get honest and get raw. Is that how you've been viewing children lately? 
Do you see them as a stewardship and blessings from God, a responsibility, or do you see kids as an annoyance, a distraction, a cramping of your lifestyle? Friends, if, if we are, we need to repent. Raising kids can be hard, and it can present all new challenges. We should have God's heart for ch- children. How can we do that here at CCBC? Pray for their salvation. Speak positively at kids. Encourage children to ask questions about the Bible. So kids, I know you sit through these long sermons and you hear all these songs. If you ever have questions about the Bible, you can stump the pastor. I know you can. You're smart. If you want to stump me at the door with a theological question, go right ahead. I will admit to you, I don't know. We want kids to ask questions about the Bible. We don't want to dismiss their questions. We want to invite them. Uh, Parents, adults, acknowledge kids when you see them in the church building. If you pass by five kids to hang out with your buddy, something's off. Get down if you need to. Make eye contact and greet them. Welcome them. Let them know we're glad you're here. And those members who are serving as volunteers in the children's ministry here, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice and love for the kids and coming alongside parents for their spiritual good. Uh, This past week in our family Devo time, uh, one of my kids asked me, well, Daddy, according to verse 15, what is the difference between a childlike faith and an adult faith? That's a good question. Here's my answer. A childlike faith is a humble, grace-dependent, and utter reliance upon Jesus. It is receiving by faith all Jesus offers in himself to inherit eternal life. As John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Then what's an adult faith? Well, adult faith is just childlike faith that's matured over time. An adult faith is one that's been tested and tried over time, and the results of it is perseverance and obedience to Jesus. So how does someone inherit the kingdom of God? It's not prove yourself to Jesus. That's a false gospel. It's not prove yourself to be good enough for Jesus. It's come to Jesus and rest in his arms. That is childlike faith. These kids have nothing. They're nobodies. They're weak. They're helpless. Everything they have is dependent upon someone greater than themselves. Friend, that's childlike faith. I need you. And he says, you're mine. That is childlike faith. And friends, I don't care how old you are or how long you've walked with Jesus. Childlike faith began the Christian life and childlike faith will be on your deathbed. Without childlike faith, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But babies and parents, 
weren't the only ones approaching Jesus. A confident, proved himself well, wealthy, religiously zealous, young whippersnapper wanted to come up to Jesus and he wanted to find out how he could inherit eternal life. Look with me in our next section now at verses 17 to 20. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now in our next section, who is this man? That's what he just called him, Mark, this man, this person, this dude. Who is this guy that somehow slithers through the knucklehead disciples who don't get it about childlike faith, and he walks through the crowd, sees Jesus. He's probably pushing little kids out of the way. They get in the way because he's probably like his the disciples. And he kneels before Jesus. He bows. Well, kneeling before Jesus is actually a sign of a good thing often. The leper in Mark chapter 1, he wants to be clean. He kneels before Jesus desperate for Jesus to heal him? Well, there's no name of the man mentioned. He's nameless. And he appears to be alone. He's kind of a lone ranger. We know from Matthew 19, verse 20, if you want to see the parallels to this passage, that he's a young man. Interestingly, the word young in Matthew's gospel literally meant a man under 40 years old. So if you're under 40, according to the Bible, you're still a young man. When you get from like 40 to 56 in the Bible, you're just a dude. And then you can do the logical conclusion what happens after 56. Paul was humble, Philemon 1.9, I an old man. I'll leave that with you with Paul. But if you're under 40, by biblical standards, you're still considered a young man. You got life ahead of you, full of ambition, a ladder to climb, people to impress. And that kind of man kneels before Jesus. So what does he do for a living? Luke's gospel says he's a ruler. The word literally means a commander, a prince, or a chief. Most likely he was a ruler, top dog, in the local Jewish synagogue. In other words, he was pretty well known amongst the Pharisees. He had the posh church property, the posh place where all the most famous rabbis would come. He was the ruler. He was the captain of his own crib. And within all three accounts, we're told he is very, very, very wealthy. He's a very, very, very wealthy young man. By our standards today, easily a millionaire, possibly even a multi-millionaire. He's a big deal. He's a big shot that's got lots of digits in his net worth. 
Matthew 19, 22, Mark 10, 22, it says he had great possessions. In Luke 18, 23, it says he was extremely rich. We might say filthy rich. Taking all these terms together of possessions and being extremely rich, the gospel writers capture the idea of a young man with a big life ahead of him who owned lots of land, property, houses, money, and he could purchase anything at any time, whatever his heart wanted. He had money accessible to him like we do bottled water. And he appears that he was a highly educated man since he says that he had kept the commandments of God from his entire upbringing. He mentions, Jesus does, the second table of the Decalogue, or the second table of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 5 to 9. And you know what the young man says? Kneeling. All these I have kept from my youth. This young man presents himself before Jesus like a straight-A honor student, someone who had achieved summa cum laude of this Jewish graduating class. He presents his moral report card to master teacher Jesus, thinking that now Jesus is going to sound the alarm. I'm going, I'm so glad you're in the kingdom with me. Give him a pat on the back. Give him a round of applause. Have all the angelic hosts join in celebrating that heaven gets him on their side. How does Jesus respond to him? How does Jesus respond to his initial question of what he must do to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus respond to this young man's self-confidence in keeping the commands of God? Look at verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here, Jesus is making sure the young man understands you better get the right standard. If you're going to think you're good, you better get the right standard. And what Jesus says is that your goodness is measured by the one who embodies the very essence of goodness. Jesus emphatically declares no one is good except God alone. Did you notice one thing this young man never says in the conversation? I'm a sinner. I'm wretched. I'm dirty. I'm a hypocrite. I'm an adulterer at heart. I'm a liar. I'm greedy. He never mentions anything about his own sin. All he sees is his performance. All he sees is a reflection of his own standard of goodness. And what Jesus says, young man... Get your eyes on the right standard. Get your eyes on this good God who gave us these good commands to show off his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness. You see, this young man was focused on his performance before God, but not on the fact that only God is good. But Jesus reminds him that those commands, they came from this God, his creator God. And friends, this good God 
doesn't simply look at how well we've performed outwardly. This good God sees the very depths of our hearts. And that's the young man's problem. He thinks that God only grades on dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And he forgets that this good God can see everything going on right here. But notice this, Jesus neither corrects him nor does he necessarily commend him, but he challenges him. He challenges him and then he exposes him. Instead, Jesus speaks not to his performance, but to his heart. Notice what Jesus says next in order to reveal how good God is and how not so good he was. Look at verse 21. Could you just imagine it? And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Think about it for a minute. Jesus is not dismissing him. He's actually appreciated the conversation. He's not rejected him for kneeling. He doesn't reject him for reading God's law. He doesn't reject him for even seeking to obey God's law. But Jesus sees that something else has seized his heart. And Jesus, knowing it, looked at him and loved him. Friends, do you know that Jesus can see the worst about us and still love us? We can't do that. We only see the bad or we see things through rose-colored glasses. Jesus can do both. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. In love, Jesus looked at him. In love, Jesus spoke to him. In love, Jesus held up the standard of what true goodness is. And true goodness is following Jesus. Jesus redefines for this young man what true goodness is. It's following the only one who's ever obeyed the commandments of God perfectly. Jesus holds up this standard. Instead of debating about how many commands he had kept, he redefines the standard for him. In essence, Jesus said, young man, you want to inherit eternal life? then give up your whole life and submit it to the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. Young man, you want to inherit eternal life? Then hand over the purse strings of everything you have and give them to King Jesus. That means your bank account, your credit cards, your homes, your property, your assets, your wealth, your 401k, your vacation homes, your farmland, your motorcycles, your vehicles, your family inheritance, your stocks and bonds, your whole life savings. If you want eternal life, I am Lord of everything, including things that mean the most to you, like your wealth. If you do that, you will have eternal life. 
this man who was once happily, confidently kneeling, stands up. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. A preacher once said of this story, the young man came with the right question to the right man and received the right answer, but he made the wrong decision. Why did this young man, who started out so ambitious and confident, leave so sad? What was the main problems with this young man's heart that made him turn away from Jesus? If you're taking notes, this is useful. This is where the kind of sharp edge of Jesus is going to touch our hearts even more. Three problems I think we all need to examine because we're not Jesus in this story. We're the rich young ruler. Problem number one, he desired self-sovereignty and would not resign from being God of his own life. He desired self-sovereignty and would not resign from being God of his own life. Notice what Jesus said. Sell all that you have. The fundamental problem with this wealthy young man was he had an identity and a control issue. He saw himself as an owner of what he possessed and not as a steward of what God had given him. Friends, that's huge. Christianity 101 is the rude awakening that he is God and we are not. And that means everything that you and I have right now in our life, no matter how hard you and I have worked, no matter how hard you and I have saved, no matter how hard you and I have thought about planning for when we may retire one day, it's all his. That's what makes this passage sting. Jesus is not the cherry on the top of a yuppie man or a yuppie woman's ice cream. He is life. He's not a bonus, a get-out-of-hell-free card. He either is our surpassing treasure or he's trash to us. Jesus demands it all because he is a jealous lover. And he will pursue that which belongs to him. Friends, let's do an exercise together, shall we? I'm going to ask the question, and you're going to say as loud as confident, not animal-like, but confident. And you're going to answer, God does. According to the scriptures, who owns everything? According to scripture, who owns everything? According to scripture, who owns everything? Let's see if God's word says that. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. First Chronicles 29, 11 and 12, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. Oh, not just our stuff, not just our life, Let's do another one. Who owns our body? Who owns our body? Who owns our body? 
Let's see in God's word what it says. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, if you are a Christian, follower of the Lord Jesus, his blood was shed for us. That means you are owned by another. You belong to him. Your dreams, your ambitions, your future, your suffering, your blessings are from him. It's not good planning. It's not who you know, at least humanly speaking. It's about the God who's purchased you through his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, one of the things that I have to work through in my own sanctification, as well as shepherding others, is when brothers and sisters get their plans ruined in their life. Things don't work out like the way you wanted. You don't get what you think you deserve. Newsflash. That might be true that you probably should, based off the faithfulness you've shown, should have more than the next person. But even then, God is wiser than us. He knows what's good for us. If he wants to make you young, healthy, and wealthy like the young man, he can And if he says, sell all that you have, give to those in need, and trust me with your future. Trust me with your finances. Trust me, trust me, trust me, and you'll have treasures in heaven that won't be taken from you. Friends, do you view yourself as an owner of all you have or a steward? Problem number two. This young man loved himself at the neglect of his neighbor. He loved himself at the neglect of his neighbor. Jesus said, give to the poor. And this man's boast to keep the letter of the law, the second table, which is really a summation of loving your neighbor as yourself, he actually found out he didn't love his neighbor as much as he thought he did. He loved his stuff. He was self-indulgent. He was more concerned with eat, drink, and be merry while others around him were hungry, hurting, and going without. This man was revealed as a man who enjoyed the good things of life, but didn't seem to care about others who didn't have very much. Friends, we are called by God to provide for our families. And Scripture does commend enjoying the good gifts of life, 1 Timothy 6.17 that Michael read earlier. But sharing... Giving and meeting others' needs in close proximity to us is really what it means to be a Christian. Friends, there's tons of scriptures I could quote to you, but what I just want you to see how Jesus actually means what he says. Turn over to Acts. Hold your place. Turn to Acts chapter 4. There's plenty of places we could go to. I just want you to see what was common and normal in the first century of disciples who took Jesus' words and applied them to their life. They took their wealth, they were members of a church, and notice what they did. Acts 4, starting in verse 32. Acts 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him, ah, that's interesting, was his own. But they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it to the apostles' feet. You can turn back to Mark 10. Within our church covenant here at CCBC that we will recite tonight at the Lord's table, have you ever paused and reflected on one of the vows we make to one another before God? We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the needs of the saints, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Friends, you guys have been generous. You guys have been a wonderful example of cheerful givers to contribute to the ministry and the support of the gospel. You have been faithful with what God has entrusted to you. Friends, let's not get complacent. Let's be careful of redefining a tension-free Christian life. Friends, if you follow Jesus, it will not be tension-free. There will always be, along the path, a cost of discipleship that Jesus touches things in our life. Last week it was marriage. This week it's children and finances. Listen, the quickest way to get a pastor fired is preach on marriage and divorce, children and finances. Boom, he's gone. I'm just following Jesus with you. I'm just, I'm tracking, just track with me. We're following Jesus together and he's touching everything of little gods in our life. If it's been stinging a little bit this morning, good, good. This is what Jesus is saying. Pry open your hands. I may prosper you and I may ask you to give it to me to use it for someone or somebody in need. Trust me. If you do so, You'll have treasure in heaven. This young man loved himself at the neglect of others around him. Problem number three, which is the third and last one, he valued earthly comfort over treasuring Christ. He valued earthly comfort over treasuring Christ. And Jesus said that if he trusted him with his finances and his future, if he invested his wealth into kingdom priorities, he would have treasure in heaven. But why did this young man walk away? Jesus loved him. It's because he loved his stuff more than Jesus. Listen, and he did not trust Jesus at his word. Listen, stewardship is a faith issue. It doesn't matter if you make a little money or a lot. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25, Jesus commends the one who multiplies what he has. The one who's condemned is the one who buried it in the dirt. He held it back. He did nothing with it. And Jesus exposes him. You thought he was a hard man. Friends, Jesus never gives us a command that's not coming from a heart of love. 
You know why people do this with their finances and their wealth and their life and their future and their everything else in their life? It's a trust issue. You've got a wrong view of Jesus. He loves you. He loves me. And he has his best interest in your mind for the rest of your life. This man, he treasured comfort on earth more than he treasured Christ forever. Jesus said, come, heart of love, follow me. That young man dropped his head and walked away. You know what's sad about this young man? We never hear about him in the Bible again. We don't know if he ever repented. We don't know if Jesus' words were ringing in his ear before he took his last breath. Friends, what was the problem with this man? It's the same problem with all of us. We view life through the lens of what I can get instead of viewing life through what God has given me. Listen, Christians think about everything in life, including our salvation, as a gift. Not take, but to receive and share. Among many things that we learn in this passage, friends, wealth can be a blessing from God and it can be a slippery slope of temptation. Uh, being rich is not a sin. Deuteronomy 8.18 1 Samuel 2.7, Proverbs 10.22, Abraham was rich, Jacob was rich, Job was rich, Solomon was rich. They were all wealthy and blessed by God. But the desire to be rich, the love of money, can ruin our hearts and send us into a dismal destruction of sin and misery. As Thomas Brooks once said, Solomon got more hurt by his wealth than he got good by his wisdom. Friend, it's not a sin to enjoy good gifts from God. 1 Timothy 6, 17. The sin committed, Jesus offered himself as a substitute for his possessions, and he chose his possessions over Jesus. The remaining portion of our time is really just seeing Jesus' promises and warnings come true. Look with me at verses 23 to 31. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Friends, what is the point of these two stories back to back? Some of you could say, well, you could have preached two different sermons, Pastor. True. But I want us to see both of them in one sermon to feel the contrast, to feel the weighty difference between the two. Children come to Jesus, disciples rebuke them. Young man comes to Jesus, thinks he's got it all figured out, 
proving himself to Jesus, and then he turns away. Friends, a prove-yourself gospel is damning. I grew up conservative. I grew up Republican. I grew up fourth-generation Baptist. Walked the aisle, sat a prayer, signed the car, got baptized five times. I am A-O-K. Friends, apart from the grace of God, receiving Christ by faith, no one gets into the kingdom. It has always been, it will always be childlike faith. Give me Jesus and all he has, and that is enough. Not what I can do for God, not what have I done for God. That was the young ruler. I'm wealthy, I'm blessed. I'm well-behaved, I'm pretty moral. I think heaven would be glad to have me. And he walked away from Jesus. Friends, how does someone inherit eternal life? How can a sinner be saved by God? With man, it is impossible. We are idol factories. Only God can make us new from the inside out. Jesus says, come to me and I will make you good from the inside out. Friends, he lived the perfect life that we failed to live. He willingly, generously gave up his life and died on the cross as a substitute, as a punishment, as a payment for all of us who would turn from our sins and trust him, receive him. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. And he says, come to me. Come to me. Don't prove yourself. Come to me and rest in me. Receive me by faith and give your whole life to me. Following Jesus is the good life. Friends, the main point of also that second passage, again, God owns what? God owns. God owns. So we are stewards of our marriage, our children, our wealth. Jesus sees every room of the house of our life. He has a key to every room. And he has access to every room. Marriage, children, finances, future. He's got it all. What room is he trying to get in that you keep trying to keep him out of? He's Lord of marriage. He's Lord of children. He's Lord of our finances, our wealth, and our future. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. If anything we have is off limits to God, if it's not subject to prayerful dialogue, then let's be honest about it. We aren't stewards. We're embezzlers. We aren't serving God. We're playing God. Friends, all of us, should go before the Lord with childlike faith. Lord, what do you want to do with my life, my marriage, our children? I want to treasure Christ over earthly comfort. Jesus said many who are first in this life will be last. And the last, first. Think about that. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your word, you speak to the most personal aspects of our life. What our marriages, our children, our finances. Lord, we pray that you would show each one of us that Christ truly is our surpassing treasure and that you can be trusted with all that you've given us. Lord, we pray you would use this sermon today from Mark chapter 10. Cause each one of us to re-examine our commitment to Christ, our stewardship to Christ. And Father, remind us every command you ever give us is from a heart of love. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.